Today, it brings me tremendous pleasure to present the first episode of season four and what a season it's going to be. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to dive into phonics, professional development, mathematics, school leadership, special educational needs, and today, motivation with one of the brightest minds in the world of education. We want to keep Tadape advert free so that our recommendations remain impartial and born of genuine interest and inspiration. But things like Zoom, the primary mode of episode recording, won't be free forever. To help support the podcast, you can subscribe at ko-fi.com forward slash Tadape by choosing one of three different subscription levels, each of which will provide you with access to episode transcripts, priority episode requests, monthly CPD videos, or even all of the above. To show your support, visit ko-fi.com forward slash Tadape. That's ko-fi.com forward slash T-D-A-P-E. There's no expectation that you do subscribe, but we hope that it'll be worth your while if you do. Now this week, we have a guest who needs no introduction. Despite enjoying success as an engineer, mathematics teacher, and Dean of the Ambition Institute, Peps McRae is best known as the author of his ultra-concise books for teachers and the go-to for all things motivation. Referenced regularly from episodes one to 53 and everything in between, it was nothing short of an honor to interview Peps. So without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. So today I'm joined by Peps McCrae. Hey Peps, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Kieran. Excited to be uh, on the podcast today. And we're going to focus our attention on motivation. And I think my first question to you, Peps, is do our pupils need to be motivated? So I think based on my read of the literature and my experience, um, I would say that Yes, I suppose, right. <laughs> Let me strip back a little bit first. So your question, do pupils need to be motivated? What's the real what's the real question there? And so I suppose the real question is, should it be a teacher's responsibility to build motivation in the classroom? Because I think the answer to, you know, should, do, should pupils be motivated is, is an easy one. Yes, like we all should be motivated, ideally. <laughs> um, I suppose there's question, questions around motivated towards what that we can dig into a little bit as well, because... There's also, uh, yeah, anyway, okay, so you open a good, a good big box of, box of, can of worms here, box of beans, whatever it is. So first, let's start with one of those questions, which is, do we think it's responsibility of teachers to build some kind of motivation for the pupils in, the, in, in, in school? And I'd say uh, the answer is yes. And I think the reason is because, well, there's a few reasons that we can kind of chuck in here. The first is that, Whenever uh, researchers, and this is, you know, done a, there's been a few studies that have looked at this, whenever like researchers look at motivation, people's levels of motivation across uh, their school career, they basically see this like inexorable decline <laughs> over the years. So that's like, you know, artifact number one, as it were. Motivation seems to decline across the school career. Now, there are a few explanations for that, or a few hypothesis, hypothesized explanations for that. The first is that the narrowing of the curriculum uh, across a school career means that for you know, many pupils, it's, it's basically less motivating. 
uh, an alternative hypothesis is that adolescent, like the development of young people into adolescence, just that kind of like biological journey uh, and the context that they're in during that time, basically like lowers their levels of motivation for you know, school, school context learning during that period. However, there's like, those are the two hypotheses that kind of come like follow the literature. However, I'd say like my, my own hypothesis like would be that those two both have an impact, but there's a third thing, which is also that schools could potentially be doing a better job of motivating their pupils. And I, like, oh, I feel really bad saying that. It's like saying, oh, teachers aren't doing a good enough job. But uh, so to be really clear here, like teachers are amazing, really smart, incredibly hardworking. But as a profession and as a society, we just don't understand motivation well enough yet. All right. So it's like nobody's fault here. Like nobody's not trying hard enough. Nobody's not smart enough. It's just that as a system, as a society and as a profession, we just haven't really uh, got a strong enough understanding of what motivation is and how to influence it yet uh, so that we can kind of like um, alter that trajectory through, through the course of school. And part of that, part of the reason we don't have that, um, that knowledge, I suppose, as it were, yet, is because it's a really hard thing to research. And so that we don't actually have the evidence base to support motivation is, for example, nowhere near as strong as the evidence base around COGSI. All right, and we know like the evidence base around COGSI is lots of questions around it. And motivation is like, you know, you know, if COGSI is a nice, like, you know, gleaming skyscraper of, of like evidence, then, uh, you know, the evidence around motivation is just a really old creaky shed. <laughs> it, uh, it really isn't, it's nowhere near as robust, you know, loads of replication issues and just massive incoherence in terms of like the language that's used to underpin the evidence base. The, the, like the research is spread across multiple fields, uh, you know, the kind of, there isn't a really strong, like coherent field that pulls it all together. Um, so yeah, that, that's the reason why we necessarily don't, we don't necessarily have like a strong core knowledge base to draw upon as the profession. And as because of that, then we don't necessarily have the tools or language yet to be able to motivate our pupils perhaps as much as we could do and as a result. Uh, I think we see this like you know, decline in motivation over school, or it's one of the factors that leads to that, which is why I think we as a profession probably do need to take a bit of responsibility over helping pupils to be more motivated. Um, and one of the ways we can do that is by just learning as much as we can from the evidence, despite its shaky status, because, you know, like kids future lives and are is a bit too important just to kind of be left until the, the research figures itself out. Yeah, I know what you mean, because when you when you mention other fields, I'm thinking about sports in particular, and you get a lot of um, possibly survivorship bias, where people who have been really fortunate, as well as really talented, it's their motivation that gets analysed, and you're almost thinking, well, this isn't necessarily the best subset of, of the population to sort of go to. Right, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the same, you know, the same has been true of some like business and business analysis as well, you know, the great, great companies or great leaders and companies, you know, <laughs> have done these things, but yeah, there's a lot of, uh, like survivor, survivorship bias, bias fallacy in, in the, in some of the, the research and especially some of the popular, uh, research books and things like that, or popular science books based on this. Um, and then, so, so I just want to like, make sure we've covered off that first question. So, 
there were kind of two, two parts to it that we're, we're kind of tackling there it is um, motivation a responsibility of, of a teacher so you know my position is yes um, we should be like you know, thinking about it as much as we are thinking about instruction for example uh, we can dig into more about how those are related in a minute but the other part of that the, the question is one of the assumptions in it you know you're saying should pupils be motivated there's an assumption there that you're either motivated or not or that it's a kind of like a general trait and actually i'd say that motivation you know with other things that, that kind of shines through in the literature when you look across these kind of you have to join the dots across the fields and the studies is that motivation is much more kind of context specific thing than just a like a general character trait so saying you know should somebody be motivated or not is not really the right question the question is like you know, should they be, should we be trying to motivate them towards a particular thing on a particular occasion for a particular reason? And as a result, should we be willing to take some of the, like, the kind of unintended consequences in terms of them being perhaps less motivated towards other things? Because, you know, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I suspect motivation, a bit like attention, is to a certain degree a zero-sum game. And so we might have to make some sacrifices uh, along the way if we're going to try and like increase motivation in certain aspects of our pupils' lives. Interesting you say that. In, in Spain, the verb attached to attention is spend. So you spend attention. And, and I think that sums it up, you know, in terms of if you're, if you're spending your motivation, you know, you, you have a, a limited amount of, you know, currency to, to work with, don't you? Right, uh, absolutely, and I think you know we we have a similar kind of metaphor has emerged in you know English language as well. We talk about paying attention, don't we? You know? yeah. uh, and you know, so like I do think attention is probably effectively th or usefully thought of as a currency of the classroom. Uh, we certainly you know it's usefully thought as a currency on social media <laughs> these days you know it's essentially like you know twitter is competing for your attention as facebook and all the other things in our lives and we're at a point at a point now where there are just so many things competing for our attention that it's ever more important that we are able to like manage where we where we place our attention and i think for me that's really what the mechanism of motivation is is a like some kind of um mechanism that allows you to uh, well Gotta be careful. A mechanism that ends up um, allocating your attention to to something. Now, the, the, how consciously you are part of that process is is a different question, which we you know, come back to. I believe I never made the connection between spend and paying attention. <laughs> Slightly embarrassed here. Well, yeah, we, we've had that phrase for many, many years. <laughs> yeah, Spanish probably got it from us. <laughs> So what, what does that mean for our practice then? Right, what, that people should be motivated uh, or that we should be taking responsibility for them? I think the, because my next two questions were about the um, motivation being something we hadn't cracked. And I think you've, you've covered that and the inexorable decline. So I think the, yeah, so considering those two ideas. And so, okay, I think, you know, it was 2017, you wrote that we hadn't cracked it. You know, the first thing you can write, have we cracked it anymore? since then and, and what should we perhaps be doing in the classroom to sort of try and get the most from the situations that we sort of encounter every day yeah yeah okay so we kind of said that there's a there's a case for doing this 
um, but how might how might we do it? I think the the, the kind of starting point for this, or the, yeah, the important starting point is to make that link between motivation and, and attention. We've kind of like opened that box a little bit already, but it'd be good to like nail lock that down a little bit. So we've you know, we've already mentioned that we live in a world where there are multiple things competing for our attention at any one time. And I've said, you know, yeah, like you know, the, the, our current um, era has more bits of information trying to compete for our attention than ever before. But, you know, 20,000 years ago, there was still, there's still a lot of information competing for our attention. So things haven't really changed, I suppose, on a, like, uh, on a macro scale. And we need some kind of way of allocating our attention. So, you know, said so this is what a useful way to think about motivation is. But the key here is just to remind ourselves that what we attend to is what we end up thinking about. And as Daniel Willingham has helped us like really wrap our heads around, what we think about is what we end up learning. And so this is kind of why motivation is such an important thing for the classroom is because motivation and attention are linked to a certain extent and attention is one of the gatekeepers of, of learning as it were. So uh, the more attention we pay to a certain object, to a certain thing, the more likely that we will learn it, that will be transferred to our long-term memory and, and kind of like retain there in a way that becomes useful for us to think about. So that's the kind of first piece, I think, just to, to kind of like lay out. Once you have that uh, in place, you can start asking the next set of questions, which is, you know, how do we go about influencing this you know, mechanism that is motivation to influence the amount of attention that gets paid? And that really, you know, that's a hard question to answer. You've got to like really look across the literature pretty hard and just see where common themes come up. And one of the things that, you know, before we dive into the common themes, one of the things that you kind of figure out in this, by trying to answer this question is that, uh, like I hinted at earlier, a lot of that mechanic operates below a, a level of our conscious awareness. So, you know, a lot of the time your brain is basically paying attention to stuff or making decisions about what to pay attention to without consulting you, essentially. It's just doing it of its own accord. And it's doing it very, very quickly as well. It's like, you know, making rapid decisions, weighing up the kind of like the evidence, weighing up the pros and cons, weighing up the value and the costs of these different opportunities, information opportunities available to you. And making very very quick decisions about like what to pay attention to and there's good reason for this because if for example we tried to consciously calculate all of the opportunities that are available to us you know you're currently like listening to me and kieran buying on about motivation however you also might have like you know twitter nagging away at you if you're like listening to this on your phone or you might have, you know, dinner coming down the, the road later on. You might be thinking about what you need to like prepare for that, or it might have been a stressful day today, and your brain's like trying to nag you to think about that. You know, all these different like things trying to compete for your attention. If you try to consciously calculate which was the best of those to pay attention to, it would just take you literally months to work out. Is it better to be listening to peps now or to be thinking about dinner later or to be like anxious, anxious, like worrying about this thing that happened earlier? It would take weeks. To just make that decision and you know of course at that point the opportunity would have gone you know there's just the opportunity cost of like taking time to make a decision is just too big 
for us to live effectively. And so basically over like you know hundreds and thousands of years, probably longer, to be honest, our brains have evolved this like uh, highly uh, efficient unconscious set of rules of thumb, um, you know, what are more like formerly known as heuristics that allow us to make very, very fast and frugal decisions about where to um, place our attention. And it's those rules of thumb that become the interesting question then, like what are these rules of thumb that our brain uses to make these very rapid decisions unbeknownst to us? Because if we can figure them out and as teachers, if we can kind of harness them, then all of a sudden we can start to like, you know, change the trajectory or change the direction of, of motivation and attention in the classroom. It sounds so clear, but like you say, it's, it's a much more complex process than, than anyone could ever imagine. I often find that a lot of the big questions come back down to how we've evolved over time. You know, I was doing some stuff on storytelling and why stories are stickier than others. And I think, yeah, the, the connection between when we evolved the ability to retrieve information and when, uh, and when we evolved language, you know, the, 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 the sort of the line that I follow, they seem to say they happened at the same time. And so they're inextricably linked. Yeah. So it's, so it's, it's fascinating hearing you talk about the connection between our evolution and, and how we're motivated because you know sometimes i know i should do something but then my, my body's telling me it's not motivated so maybe it's making the decision for me <laughs> yeah so i think um, you know there's, there's loads of examples of this in like our, our lives <laughs> uh the present day um that kind of like tension between our evolved architecture and our modern environment is ever more kind of present you can you experience it whenever you have this kind of conflict between wanting to eat chocolate and knowing that it's bad for you longer term like you know you, you sometimes like you can i can definitely speak from experience here saying that i have made conscious decisions not to eat chocolate or biscuits and those decisions have been overridden by by myself which is a really strange thing and that's a really good example of the kind of like those unconscious heuristics um, being like being put into play and also a good example of just how powerful they are. So even though like we rationally have worked out our plan and made a decision around, you know, doing whatever it is, like not eating chocolate, about saying like doing some exercise, about you know, not arguing with people on Twitter, whatever it is, sometimes in the moment, uh, like those unconscious heuristics will just override like completely just like trample all over those like conscious decisions and so i think that's like a useful idea to kind of hold in our minds when we're teaching is that some of what we're doing is actually you know harnessing the unconscious here a little bit for the benefit of our of, of the of our pupils so would we be better than focusing our attention in class and i'll try not to get attention too much into it. so like is, is it a good bet for us to focus on those strategies that primarily are designed to draw people like worked examples for instance or if you phase a worked example back out you know for me in my mind they draw attention to particular properties and essentially that's what they're there for are those the kind of things we should focus our attention on in the absence of concrete sort of message from the the motivation research community motivation is about determining like trying to influence the direction of that attention and the the magnitude of that attention which you know we kind of can equate with effort yeah so that's sort of like you can uh, what we're doing when we're thinking about motivation is like getting our pupils to like direct their attention towards a particular thing that we're interested in and continue like persist with att 
tending to that thing, despite having you know, potentially some like difficulties or despite there being other things that are competing for their attention. Figuring out what they should be, like what they should be attending to is another massive question, but probably one we're not going to be able to, to like tackle today. Um, but, you know, the work, to, uh, work to example pairs is a, is a good example of like a strategy where as teachers we're thinking really carefully about what our pupils should pay attention to in order to help them build like a really strong schema so that they understand this stuff. So yes, like in a classroom context, what we're thinking about here is like how can, you know, if we think that paying attention to these particular, you know, very specific parts of this work example pair uh, is the right thing to do, which it probably is, then how can we do that? Like, how can we maximize or optimize their attention towards those things? And the answer is we try to like pull all of these like um, levers, these unconscious levers called heuristics and, you know, cross our fingers that that, that will happen. So what might some of these heuristics be? Well, there's kind of like a, a group of them that are uh, like fall within the classic economics set. Uh, and then there's a group of them that fall within the kind of more modern behavioral economics um, suite. And so if we just start with the kind of classic economics, like the heuristics, um, the first is really around, one of the levers is around uh, value. Like how valuable is it for us to pay attention to this particular thing? What value will it bring us? And one of the like bits of information our brain uses to you know, determine this is basically looking at our prior success rate. So. You know, if you've been successful in, you know, if people's been successful in your class time and time again, then it's much more likely that they're going to pay attention to whatever you suggest they pay attention to um, the next time they're, they're in your class. In contrast, if they, you know, have, you know, if they've paid attention to the things that you've suggested and they've repeatedly experienced failure, then, you know, it makes sense that they're just not, you know, why should they pay attention to this thing again? Because, you know, it hasn't delivered value for them in the past. Uh, like, it would be crazy. That would be a, like, a maladaptive <laughs> thing to have evolved, essentially, is, like, keep doing something where you fail. So, like, there's, you know, there's good reasons for this, and it makes sense. And the implications for us as teachers are that we just got to try and increase the success rate for our pupils, really. Now, the, you know, the big thing that we can do to do this is just to teach well. All right, so like the number one message, I think, around motivation is just teach well. <laughs> if you teach well, that's probably the best thing, biggest thing you can do to uh, increase motivation. You know, explain clearly, break things down into like manageable chunks, provide lots of opportunities for practice and feedback, all that kind of stuff. Um, however, let's just like assume that that's happening. You know, obviously a big assumption, lots of stuff we could talk about in terms of like good teaching, but let's just assume there's great teaching going on. There are also some other things that we can do to increase like that, that feeling of success because success is a, 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 actually quite a subjective thing. One pupil's success could be another pupil's failure, really. A pupil in your class uh, could be like doing all of the things that you think they should be doing. They, they could be like you know, asking questions. They could be trying really hard. They could be bouncing back from like you know, failure. They could be helping their peers, all those kinds of things. But in their head, they might believe that success means getting all of the questions right first in the class. And if that doesn't happen, it's if that experience is a failure for them. And so they'll walk out of that lesson thinking, I've failed. And if they do that time and time again, the next, like their motivation is just going to like decline and decline and decline. And so one of the things we can do as teachers is not only teach well, 
but frame success, help our pupils understand what it means. Because, you know, they come to the classroom, we're just, you know, we shouldn't just leave it to them to, to like guess, figure out what success means, you know. We should, you know, help them understand like a good version of success. And so that can just, you know, mean explaining to them really clearly. In this classroom, success means, you know, trying really hard, put your hand up when you don't understand, helping your peers, uh, bouncing back when you don't get it, all, any, you know, whatever it is that you think success is, so that at least you're, what you're working towards is aligned with, with kind of what they're experiencing. And that means that over time, it's more likely that if you're teaching well and they, under, they have got a, like a good understanding of success, that they're going to start to build like motivation over time. In classical economics, you've got classical economics, which basically treats kind of humans as uh, rational actors to a certain extent. We are uh, motivated by value and, and cost um, and expectancy, things like that. Uh, behavioral economics kind of suggests that like rational behavior is a bit more complex than that. Uh, there's like a social layer to it as well. So we're just sticking with, if we stick with the classical economics like uh, levers for the minute. So we've talked a little bit about a value type thing, which is uh, prior success rate, more commonly known as expectancy in the, in the literature. Um, the counter to that, you know, in classic behavioral economics, uh, suggests that we're motivated not only by value, but by the cost of something, like how much effort we have to put in or how much we have to invest in that. You know, if I, I said to you, look, okay, Mac, I've got, here's a million pounds. Uh, you'd be like, give me it, wired over peps by PayPal, I'm ready to receive it. But if I said, well, actually, you know, to get this, you have to uh, work as a, you know, day trader for 14 hours a day for the next 20 years of your life, you might think, you know, you might think twice about that because you're doing like a cost benefit, a very sensible cost benefit analysis there. And it might not be that that's a good, good cost, a good use of your time. Seems true in like any kind of environment, uh, including the classroom. Our pupils are constantly trying to weigh up like what's the cost here, and does it like m measure up to the the kind of benefit that I might be getting? The tricky thing here is that in economic studies, what they tend to do is to just try and make things easy. So it's like reduce the cost, make things easy for the consumer or the participant, and that increases their level of motivation. Obviously, in the classroom, we we, we don't really want to just do that because learning is effortful <laughs> and so if you reduce the amount of effort then you're basically going to reduce the amount of learning that happens and so you have the like, what's the answer to this conundrum here and i think one of the answers to this conundrum is routines because what routines do is they redeploy the uh, amount of attention that gets paid towards something from thinking about like the the how to thinking about the what so let me try and explain this so the more you do something the more it becomes a routine when something becomes a routine you have to pay less attention to what's happening and when you pay less attention to the how the like the routine the mechanics of what's happening in the classroom you're able to pay more attention to the what the content to the object of your learning and so what that uh, means is we kind of get this uh, like we can like manufacture this trade-off whereby we are um, in decreasing the amount of attention our pupils have to spend or pay towards like the, the 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 pedagogy, the how, the process of learning, so that we can maintain or even ramp up the amount of attention they're paying to the thing that they were trying to get them to learn. And as we said earlier, you know, paying attention to the thing makes you think about it, makes you learn it. Um, and so routines are a good example of how we can essentially reduce the cost, which increases the the kind of cost benefit. Uh, an equation 
which increases the the level of motivation. So that's um that's that's a kind of another example, like a classic economics type lever that we're going to pull. That was one of my favorite bits of motivated teaching, and it really had a big impact on how I designed tasks. And we, we've actually been using in early years this year with number bonds. And right. so we, we've sequenced the bonds that we want them to learn from nursery through to the end of perception. And I said to them, let's have five stock activities that the pupils know how to engage with so they can focus on the bonds themselves. So it'll be the, it'll be the mathematics that changes slightly. And then, you know, I, I would do the same. I have, I have a stock set of encounters that I want my pupils to have whenever I'm modeling with my, with my teachers, because then, yeah, like so you can get quite complex. Yeah, it really stood out to me. And, you know, when, when you're talking now about routines and things, I think in terms of where we're going to sort of focus, not having, you know, unique and wonderful, you know, in inverted commas, like tasks for every single lesson is one of the big things that I learned whenever I read Motivated Teaching. Yeah, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we, like, make our, all of our lessons really dull and boring repetitive. But what I, what I think the optimal point is where we have a you know 80% a majority of the kind of processes that pupils are engaged in are are kind of automated for them at least or or they understand what's coming or they're familiar because otherwise they just they have they'll end up spending so much of their attention on what's going on here that they just don't think about the thing so you know if we care about learning then we get, we kind of got to go down that route but a couple of things firstly you can have like quite a wide repertoire of routines. So we're not saying like every lesson is exactly the same, not at all. You can, you can build your repertoire of routines over time so that you know, each lesson isn't the same as the last one, but you know, within a, like a month, you're gonna, people are going to experience lots of different things that they recognize. Um, and of course, you know, it's, 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 it's probably a good thing to slip in the odd, like totally different curveball type approach as well. Um, because, you know, again, we want to just, keep our pupils sharp and you know keep things a bit exciting as well um, and then last thing to say on this is that routines are not only good for shifting the balance of attention they're also really good for creating a sense of like security and safety in the classroom and uh, so there's kind of like a, a knock or a bonus byproduct of, of going down this route in that it's it's actually quite an inclusive strategy as well pupils will tend to feel a little bit safer in your classroom a bit more confident particularly those who kind of need that confidence and safety the most anyway we've talked a little bit about these like some of these classic levers but uh, there are also you know some more kind of uh, behavioral economics type levers um, behavioral economics pretty much takes like classical economics and layers on this whole kind of like social type type layer and uh, one of the kind of key levers that spills out of that literature is this idea of the of, of social norms and basically it's like what social norms the literature around social norms says is that we are like quite heavily influenced by the behavior and attitudes of others like more than we think basically uh, you know it's, it's one of those like yeah, pretty unconscious things we're not always aware of it but like what other people do and you know their attitudes have a big big influence on what we end up doing and i like yeah i know this for or i've felt this in a couple of different ways for example you know when i try to get my son to put his socks on in the morning before he heads off to school it's it's hard work man it's hard work whereas you know he heads into his like uh, 
local primary classroom and his teacher can have all 30 of them like doing all sorts of like stuff uh, with very little effort and i think my hypothesis is that a big part of that is you know, it's not that that teacher is like massively more effective than me i've been a good teacher like i know some of the skills uh, i think it's because uh, of the social norm like partly a big part of that's the social norm effect like that's how schools manage to operate uh, in this scale is because as a species we like you know we conform quite heavily to behavior of others and so that teacher can't as long as most people in that classroom are doing that thing my son's going to feel a really strong compulsion to like to to kind of conform to that group norm um, and there's i think you know you talked earlier about the the value of taking an evolutionary lens on some of this stuff and actually i think there's you know this is one of these uh, areas that you know evolutionary explanation can add a little bit of like insight um, just got to be, you know, be careful about how, how we do that because, you know, evolutionary psychology is a domain that's very hard to gather empirical evidence around. <laughs> you know, we're, we're kind of peering into the past and making a lot of conjecture uh, uh, and building hypotheses. It's very hard to, like, you know, pr prove those things. But one of the, the kind of hypotheses that we do have is that, uh, you know, 20,000 years ago, uh, if we... You know, working working with other humans in groups was a really important thing, and as a result, there was a kind of like evolved um, trait that meant that those who conformed to the norms of the group, who like supported the group, um, uh, and stuck with the kind of like these shared rules, these shared hidden rules ended up like staying within the group and, and being more successful because those who didn't those who kind of like broke the, the the hidden unwritten rules the norms of the group could end up being outcast and you know 20,000 years ago like the consequences of being outcast were pretty drastic man you get like eaten by a tiger or you just like die of hunger because like that's one of the things that makes us like a bit unique as a species is that we kind of have to cooperate to survive in many contexts um, we're not able to bring ourselves up very well for the first few years of our lives and uh, you know there's a whole a bunch of stuff that we need to do together as a group in order to be able to like not only survive but flourish and so as a result we you know we take that kind of evolve like that 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 mind that we'd evolved over you know many thousands of years many millennia uh, which hasn't changed a lot in the last you know 200 years despite society having changed hugely and we plunk it in this classroom uh, and what it means is like there is you know we can kind of social norms still have a big effect despite you know that mechanic not necessarily needing to uh, be in place to survive these days anyway slide aside there back to the, the conversation so what that means for our teachers is that what we want to do really is to highlight or raise the visibility of the most desirable social norms within our, our class or our school. Uh, and we can do that by like, you know, just calling out the most desirable behaviors when we see them, making them as visible, amplifying them as much as possible, you know, like calling out, oh yeah, like Peter's done a great job over there by doing this X, Y, Z you know, telling stories, you know, in my other class, this is what they did. And, you know, this is why it was a benefit to, to them. Um, yeah, you know, in the future, I imagine like showing videos of other pupils who are like, you know, nailing it. Uh, like and all of those kinds of things can reinforce, reinforce these messages of what like desirable norms look like. A few other nuances here, like firstly, the more people that uh, are kind of like in, in line with the norms, the more powerful the effect is. So if you have like 100% of your class aspiring to, you know, learn lots or help out their partners or, you know, ask questions, whatever it is, then the strong compulsion for everyone to like be part of that. 
if just one person like dissents from that view, if they just got one person who's like, nah, that's not my game, then actually it makes it way easier for other people to, to not conform as well. So like 100% adoption uh, is a really powerful thing to achieve. Second nuance is that it's best to emphasize what you want to see rather than what you don't want to see. Um, the example I try out every time here is personal one. Whenever I taught, I there were times where I'd come in after having set my pupils some homework and they, you know, the time where they didn't do very much of it, I'd come in the next day and say, "Look, team, uh, loads of you didn't do your homework. Sort yourselves out you know, for next time." And the message I'm sending there is the dominant norm in this class is not to do your homework. And as a result, those few people who were doing their homework are now questioning themselves, thinking, "Oh, am I in danger of like being outcast from this group? I am, you know, not 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 uh, conforming to the social norm." And so, you know, dangerous kind of message to send out to the class. They're potentially a counterproductive one. And so, always best to emphasize what you want to happen rather than what you don't. Yeah, definitely get that. And I think I was quite lucky in my first school. That was that was the the approach we took to manage behavior because I've, I've been on both sides of the critical mass, you know, where the critical mass was towards learning as much as possible. And, you know, it's very different when the critical mass is reversed and right. you know, it's very easy not to engage because then you have to work five, six times as hard to get everybody going, you know, when it's the school culture, you know, and you can, and, you know, people say you can feel, obviously that feeling is born from a lot of hard work established in that culture and, and those norms, you know, because, it makes life so much easier and you can focus on education. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, I think that's really what culture is in many ways, is just this like, you know, the, the, all, all of these group norms kind of bundled together and it does, yeah, it has a, has a massive effect. And if you, like, I think critical mass is a good way of thinking about it. You know, you really want your critical mass to be on the, on the desirable side because otherwise you really, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of pushing the rock up the hill. That's an example of a behavioral economic type lever another one which is kind of closely related to that is this idea of belonging uh, which you kind of touched on a little bit earlier uh, when we like dived into the you know evolutionary psychology piece um in that you know belonging to a group is actually something you know we've we've developed a heuristic around as well uh, and actually we're we're like much more motivated to conform to those social norms when we feel we belong to a particular group um you know we, we if you if you think about your own context you know if you belong to like a you know sports group or you know a club or whatever it is like you you feel quite compelled uh to to, to their social to like you know, conform to their social norms compared to like some other group that you're not interested in you just like you know, that, that kind of washes over you and it can be even like you know can go even further where you feel you really don't belong to a group you know, like that just doesn't not part of your identity you can even push back on those norms and resist them and this is kind of what we end up seeing in adolescence, secondary school, at a certain point, pupils begin actively pushing back because they, their identity, uh, they're trying to shape this like independent identity, which is an important part of growing up. But one of like the, you know, the uh, unfortunate side effects of it is that they rally against like the, the, the family group norms and oft, often sort of like school group norms as well and so you have this really you know secondary school around about year eight you have year nine you have this like kind of tricky tension uh, that you have to, to to navigate you know the way around that and in general the way to kind of harness this is just to try and build a sense of belonging 
um, in your classes and across your school, but like you've talked about earlier, you know, building that culture, you know, part of culture, I suppose, is norms, but it's also this sense of belonging. And we can do this just by taking like an intentional approach to building belonging, which means making sure everyone feels like they're included. Very basic thing, you know, making sure you know everyone's names and know a little bit about them and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and getting their names right. Then there's a piece around like making sure everyone feels a sense of status in that group, in your classroom, in the school. You know, they feel they have a role to play and they've got some kind of responsibility and they have some kind of like, they get rewarded with the, what the group achieves if that makes sense so you know if you do well as a group of your class like achieves in some kind of sense whatever it is academically or just like in the school that they're recognized as part of that achievement as like a, you know somebody who contributes to the group and then you can also unite people around a common purpose um, and that like you know that can be you can create a whatever it is common purpose it'd be like oh we want to do really well in our sats or it could just be like we want to learn loads about this or we just want to be like a really caring group and help each other whatever it is like having a kind of clear-cut group identity potentially even some rituals that go along with that creates a stronger sense of belonging last thing just to say around belonging is that uh, it is catalyzed quite a lot by feelings of affinity uh, or like basically like feeling that you are you share you have something in common with somebody else um you know you know if we for example, find out that we came from the same country, Kieran, we, you know, immediately feel a sense of affinity uh, and a bit more sense of belonging. If we find out the same birthday, then that would increase, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so opportunities to like help your pupils find common ground can be really powerful, like levers in terms of building belonging and motivation in the classroom. And so probably worth doing that every so often is just like you know, giving your pupils a bit of chance to ask each other, you know, what are the things that you're interested in? Like what are the things you care about? Because if they can find common ground around those things, then it's much more likely they end up like building belonging around those like, like useful characteristics rather than around more superficial characteristics, which we know like as humans, we tend to, that's how we tend to group. <laughs> and it's not always that helpful in modern society. Is that how you would, you would dedicate a little bit of time regularly to those less tangible aspects? You know, because, you know, I think things like the sort of the routines that are associated with, you know, belonging and, you know, the group identity, you know, you could probably control those to a certain extent, but in the ones that you can't, you know, like how people feel affinity for things, it's just, you know, little and often opportunities to sort of engage with them socially with their peers. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And it's quite a sophisticated like play, isn't it? And it's quite far removed from, you know, learning about fractions or whatever it is. And so, you know, a, a tricky, you know, I, I, uh, if it was me, I wouldn't be spending loads of time on that, but I would be spending a little bit of time on it, like regularly, if that makes sense, you know, a few minutes here and there every week or whatever. And that might take the form of just, you know, like creating a structured discussion between your pupils, or it might just be that you are the one doing the signposting saying, oh, you know, Peter, Chiara there is like interested in that same thing as you. And so helping, you know, using your knowledge of pupils to like help them like feel a sense of belonging together. I don't know, all this stuff's like fairly, yeah, we ain't got any RCTs on this stuff. So <laughs> it's quite speculative. But I think there are schools out there who have really nailed like culture and belonging and, uh, you know, are doing it in a really powerful way. Um, so I think we can like certainly learn from some of the practices that they have. When, when I'm thinking of the primary school, I'm thinking of the playground and, you know, maximizing duty time to have those conversations and to connect pupils together and things. Cause you almost, you know, you get to spend time with them outside of the, 
the more formal setting of the classroom. I think that, that's the first thing that comes to mind with me. Um, okay, so let me pick up on the last the last kind of lever here, then this last heuristic. Uh, when you look at the literature around like, motivation, one of the themes that recurs is this idea of autonomy. Uh, so certainly, like there is a bunch of evidence around how autonomy, like increased autonomy, can increase motivation for adults in the workplace. Um, however, like I had to spend quite a lot of time trying to think hard about how this applied to the classroom and whether it did at all. Um, and I think I like got to a place where uh, I think that autonomy doesn't necessarily, you know, my understanding of like the nuances in the literature is that autonomy doesn't necessarily apply so cleanly to the classroom environment because uh, autonomy sort of our choice only really works when it's meaningful. Um, and pupils don't necessarily always have that meaningful uh, set of choices uh, in the classroom. You know, what, what, what do we mean by meaningful choice? Well, like firstly, there's some evidence to suggest that having too many choices is actually not meaningful. You know, you have the like choice paralysis, you can't make a decision and it's not meaningful. So like you know, where we do have the opportunity to present some uh, like choices to your pupils, then, you know, great, but like let's keep, keep those like choices constrained in terms of the number of them. However, more than often, our pupils aren't in the best position to make meaningful choices about what or how they should be learning. Kind of analogy here is like going to your doctor and your doctor saying, hey, you know, what do you think we should be doing with you here? It's like, nah, man, like, you're the expert here. Uh, please, can you make the decision for me? <laughs> um, and I think the same is true in school. Uh, like teaching and learning is not as natural a phenomena, uh, phenomena as perhaps uh, we sometimes make it out to be in society and as a result a bit like medicine there's some counterintuitive stuff in there and it's probably best left for to experts to make like the decisions uh, and then what that means is basically the teachers make executive decisions about like what and how people should be learning but and this is a critical bit but they do invest time in helping pupils to understand the benefits of those decisions for them. And I think there's like kind of a curse of expertise thing here that often happens in that uh, as teachers, it can become, it kind of becomes obvious to us over time, like why this thing that we're learning is helpful. Like, you know, why is it helpful to learn fractions or how we're learning this thing is important. You know, like doing some quizzing, of course that's important, but actually uh, it's not obvious, definitely not obvious to our pupils. And so we probably just need to like catch ourselves and remind ourselves and take the time to repeatedly communicate like why those things are of benefit to our pupils and bringing those benefits as close as possible to them. Yeah, and so that's the kind of the way I'm currently thinking about autonomy in the classroom playing out. Makes a lot of sense. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about when I first realized self-reporting wasn't an effective sort of research method or as effective as it possibly as other methods you know that was a big day in terms of me understanding what i was reading and you know when i think about the classroom you know it, it's like like you say the teacher is there to make those decisions and um, but certainly articulating your decisions as you're going along you know the reason you know like you, you mentioned down when you were on and um, you know memory being the residue and thought and things i'll say to the pupils right okay you're going to remember what you pay attention to so if you're paying attention to the squirrel outside you know that's what you remember from this lesson but if you remember this you know and, and sort of like giving them the, the sort of the, the lean version of, of what's going on inside the, the expert teacher's head, so to speak. 
Right, and love it. That's good. And that's called, uh, you know, that's metacognition, isn't it? You know, building metacognition to certainly, or, or an aspect of metacognition. And actually, within the motivation literature, they've even got a word for it called meta motivation. <laughs> it's like it's a ridiculous word, but you know, fairly catchy. And so, what you'd be doing by uh, helping your like articulating the decisions you're making around motivation is helping your pupils to build this like meta motivation, which I think is a great gift because motivation is not only something that people struggle with, but you know, adults struggle with as well. <laughs> like we talked about earlier in terms of chocolate and stuff. And so helping your pupils over time to build a like stronger understanding of what motivates them will enable them or increase the chances that they're able to achieve their goals whenever they like get older, leave school or even outside of the school context. And that's a, like a really good gift, isn't it, Mark? And if I could say to you, wait, well, here's some things you can do to increase the chances of you achieving like the goals that you have for yourself. That's, that's an awesome, awesome gift, isn't it? Um, good, like relevant topic around New Year, which is when we're recording this for those people who care. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's probably one of one of the one of the best gifts you can give people, you know, because, you know, you can control the first 14, you know, those 14 school years, what are the, the first 18 years of their lives? And then after that, they're you know, it's, it's a big shock when you realize that you're not going to be spoon fed to the extent that you were junior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think like, yeah, you know, big gifts we can give people is obviously like teaching them loads of stuff. So they have that, like that, that knowledge to go out and like, you know, have agency in the world. But then, yeah, secondly to that is like giving them tools to be able to go on and, and keep learning beyond school. And actually, you know, I, I, I wonder whether in the future we'll be thinking about that journey not just after school but through the school career trying to like make it slightly more make it more concerted like joined up effort towards building that kind of metacognition um, so that by the time you know they get to year 11 they've got a large amount of the tools and responsibility and themselves but yeah we'll see we'll see it might not be possible really stunning to me from listening it's just how complex our job can be sometimes you know and actually that you have articulated so succinctly in in your books and in the work of the ambition institute you know it's actually phenomenal because you've taken really dense and com complex subject matter and made it accessible you know so i've seen teachers coming through utilizing the materials over the last couple of years and you know it's uh, yeah you, just listening to you now make, makes it really apparent how difficult a job that must have been but you know i want to think that the profession is pretty grateful for that's very kind of you to say here and i'd say that uh, you know it's there's a lot of people doing this work uh, you know we've got we're in this i think in a certain ways in certain ways not but in certain ways a bit of a golden age in education uh, we're kind of on this on this cusp of like professionalizing our, our work which is really really exciting and there's a whole bunch of people you know including yourself who are like you know, mucking in, sticking their, 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 their shoulder into this, which is, you know, helping to, to, to do this, like, really important work of, you know, grappling with what, what it means to be an evidence-informed practitioner. But I think on the counter side of that, like, the reason we're doing this in 2020 is because it is such a complex profession. You know, medicine worked this out 100 years ago, or at least started to work this out 100 years ago. The reason we're only getting to this point now or you know, the last while is because, it is such a complex job. You know, brain surgeons have it easy. They so do. Like, you know, they, they're patients. They're operating on brains in a kind of similar way to we are. Actually, we're operating on minds, which is even harder. 
but we don't even get to like open up the heads and see what's going on. The stuff we operate with is like operate on is invisible. We have to do it on 30 people at once. Uh, and they don't necessarily want to be there. And the only tools that we have are words and images. Like it's insane, the, the task that teachers are set, it really is. And so like, we're, I think we're only ever gonna be able to do a great job of that if we can start to unpack some of the evidence around like some of those invisible processes that are happening within the classroom, as we said before. So the DFE is one of their advertisements for become a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there are wider structural changes in the education system that might hypothetically lead to increased motivation? You know, or are we better focusing solely on the interaction between student and, and teacher? Right, that's a really good question. And this, so just to be really clear at this point, I'm gonna be starting to drift into my own like opinion and hypotheses. Up until now, I've been kind of leaning heavily on what you know, found from reading around the literature over many, many years. Um, but these questions, I think, are new to me. Yeah, so, but I'm happy to kick things around with you. <laughs> I can hear your ideas as well. So, in terms of like wider structural changes, uh, like one of the questions we might ask. Well, one of the questions we might ask is, you know, what role do exams play in motivation? Gosh, and that's like you know, opening up a whole, like, even more complex box from the like a motivation literature. What we might say is that. It's not necessarily exams themselves that have a big influence on motivation, but how they are framed and interpreted and felt by people. So like one part of that is the, the, the kind of level of stakes that are felt. So really, if a pupil feels that an examination is a really high stakes thing, then actually that can inhibit some of their attention and can like lower some of their motivation. So that can have like a negative impact on their performance and learning. Having zero stakes actually is is not not ideal either you know when, when people feel there are zero stakes attached to a particular like you know performance or a particular test then they don't put as much effort or attention to into it either so there's this kind of like sweet spot in the middle where you have a kind of like uh, are giving people like the optimal opportunity to, to to learn and perform what else in terms of exam so well there's obviously there's like there's this piece around performing for the exam versus like like learning stuff that's going to be helpful for you for the rest of your life. You know, exams are really just a, a tool that allows us to infer what pupils know. And as a result, you know, placing too much emphasis on the exam rather than the, the, the content itself can distract pupils <laughs> from, from being motivated towards the content itself. It's a kind of classic example of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. You know, so if you have, you know, if we kind of work towards the exam as being the thing, then actually pupils are more interested in the grade rather than they are the, the learning. And if that's the case, then there can be all sorts of like effects that, that come with that. You know, pupils can focus more on just like giving the test and they can focus more on just like cramming for it rather than like learning the stuff so they have it in longer term memory. Yeah, you know, all, all sorts of things like that that can be more counterproductive in the long run. And so, okay, so there's one example of like a kind of like wider structural thing for us to be tussling with as a profession around like not necessarily exams themselves, but how we like frame them or situate them, them in the lives of, of pupils. My oldest did the phonics check because obviously they were in lockdown last year in year one and he had no idea he'd done it. You know, he yeah. knew that he, he, he came home and said, how would you say this sound? Because he got one wrong and he's all 
you know, he, he still thought he was right. But I know there are children who, in the same situation, will have felt perhaps intense pressure. And um, so it, it showed me that it is possible for children to go through the exam system without any actual sort of external pressure on them, I think. You know, because when I think about what we've got in primary, I would take out the exams in year two. But I do think having a benchmark at the start and the end of the, the phase, you know, from a base nine to six is, is essential. Because like you said, it's, the, it's almost the first way to get a measure of how pupils have done against uh, you know, what they've supposedly learned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think like my, in my experience, very limited experience uh, of working with schools, I think pr primary can do or are generally doing a slightly better job of managing that like optimal level of stakes <laughs> for pupils. It gets it gets harder for secondary schools around GCSEs to ma to manage that because it's just like a you know it's a big temptation to make you know to use the exam as a really big like extrinsic motivator and you know there's like a there's, there's a tricky tension there because that to a certain extent that can be a really powerful motivator um, but you know uh, you know the, the, what the literature suggests is that um, if you lean heavily on extrinsic motivators whenever you like take them away, levels of motivation like can return to baseline essentially, or even worse, they can like return to worse levels. Um, because what you essentially said is by you know using that as an extrinsic motivator, you said like this thing is is not as valuable as perhaps it could be. And so we've had to put in place this other thing to increase your value towards it. So you know not that much you know learning maths isn't as good uh, just for its own sake as perhaps you previously thought. And so, you know, Dan Willingham's got some good like rules of thumb around this, you know, in terms of extrinsic motivators like exams or chocolate or bribes or whatever it is, or rewards. And it's a case of like use them as little as possible, only when you need to, to kind of like get pupils to like over the hump or get them started or whatever it is, uh, and use them as little as possible and withdraw them as, as soon as you can and try to build those more intrinsic motivators, which are like basically motivation towards the thing that you're trying to get them to learn. Probably more effort at primary because you're building those intrinsic sort of motivations, but bigger payoff going forward. And if you think about the system as a whole, actually we're doing secondary a favor by instilling this sort of intrinsic motivation, you know, because like you say, once you take them away, the negative effects are, are sort of quite, quite apparent, aren't they? You know, it, it's taken us a while to get, you know, because I think the no stakes to low stakes is a distinction. You know, it's taken me five years to convince everybody that I'm working with that, you know, I want some stakes here. So we've got the people sort of working against themselves. So in the retrieval practice and um, saying, Matt, how did, did you beat your last score? You know, did you get that question that you got wrong last? You know, and that, that's how we sort of try to square that circle because it's, it's a difficult, because competition is quite a, it's quite an emotive subject sometimes, I think, in primary schools. Yeah, really, and really nebulous, like really tricky. And I think what, you know, what you're doing makes a lot of sense is, like framing competition against yourself against your prior self rather than others because you know if you set up competition within a group against other people that's a that's a that is a zero-sum game like you know there is when somebody wins somebody's going to lose every time um and sadly just because of the 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 nature of like variation and like you know knowledge and working memory and things like that you're going to end up with some people's like losing more often than, than others and some winning more often than others. And that can have a big impact on their motivation. And like definitely one of the things that we can do is to help people think more about 
success because that's this is one of the like the the ways this is one of the contributing bits of information we use to determine success we talked about earlier is like your relative position in the classroom if you think that's important whereas what you're suggesting is that we help like we can see that narrative within pupils that actually it's not about like where i am in the class or how i'm doing compared to others it's how i'm doing compared to my prior self then that can be much more powerful and sustainable like position instead of a zero sum game that's a positive sum game everyone can win in that game uh, which can be a really really powerful really powerful thing and when i think of systemic change i often think about the autonomy and institutional autonomy that we have in schools and you know so if you're thinking where's can go with this question i'm i'm i would be happy to reduce the amount of autonomy we had as schools if it increased the consistency of offer to pupils across the the system i think it's uh it's like a spider-man type quote you know with great power comes great responsibility it's like what you don't want to do is give people loads of autonomy if they don't have the knowledge to be able to you know like make wise decisions <laughs> and so what you you know potentially can get is with this increased professionalism within the sector you can actually start to increase levels of autonomy but in order to get there you probably have to have a little bit less autonomy to make sure that everyone gets to that point in the first place so you know again medicines are kind of like a useful kind of analogy you know, not they're not the same as medicine but it's a good like mirror to hold up and to force us to think about what we're doing um you know there is quite a high degree of structure in terms of like how you become a doctor you know over a bunch of years and you have to conform to a bunch of standards and sign up to like you know, code of practice and all those kinds of things and the way that you know hospitals operate there's like high degree of standardization in certain things in order for you know the healthcare to be able to operate effectively but then doctors have like quite a high degree of autonomy when it comes to like their professional judgment over the thing that they you know uh, should have judgment over you know the, the, the kind of decisions about their patient's health and so, you know, I think in terms of autonomy, there are uh, not just like a blanket, more autonomy or less autonomy. I think it's like autonomy in which aspects, more or less. I think there's also like, there's also a really interesting question around the amount of, because, you know, we're talking about autonomy is, isn't just like a, a flat landscape. You know, it's kind of uh, autonomy may differ in different aspects. Earlier on, we said, like I talked about this, like lever, in terms of um, not giving pupils too much autonomy in terms of what or how they learn. However, I think there potentially is like a really interesting experiment to do around giving pupils autonomy in like how much they show up to, to the learning experience. So, you know, if you look to some developing countries, you see that like the levels of motivation of pupils is sky high because they're you know, one of the one of the reasons is because they have a choice about whether to go to school. Now, uh, you know, part of that is tied up with the like the scarce resource and like you know the, the challenge of like getting good education across to everyone. But part of it is, I reckon, definitely tied to this idea that they, they do have a choice. Whereas in you know in our country, it's like uh, it's mandatory that everyone shows up to school every day. And, you know, I question how, whether there's anything structurally we can do to try and make that at least feel like it's more of a thing they're opting into because uh, that could potentially build motivation. But I, I'm not sure whether that's a, uh, like a, a circle we're ever going to be able to square. 
<laughs> but interesting, you know, for chucking stuff around, Kane, might as well throw that. And um, yeah, I hadn't quite thought about, you know, I wasn't necessarily suggesting we take autonomy from the pupils, but more from schools and the yeah. system and the system itself. Um, but yeah, that's probably a conversation for a, for another time. <laughs> for the pub. That's for the, pub. <laughs> yeah. the nature of primary school is that children are often motivated by a desire to impress an authority figure. I think you've touched on that quite a few times already. Um, and this, you know, obviously I've never taught in secondary. I've, I've worked with secondary age pupils. It seems to change, you know, when peer approval takes precedence over adult approval. Do you think primary schools should try and avoid motivating children through such moves to a, a, appeals to approval? You know, for instance, I'll be very disappointed if you... Thinking about approval, like social approval, essentially is as a, well, it's, it's kind of tricky. There's two, two ways to think of it. The first is thinking about it as a form of extrinsic motivator. So, you know, it's, it's a bit like saying, oh, here's some money or here's some chocolate if you do this. Basically, it's saying, I'll give you some social approval, I'll give you like a little dopamine hit if you, you know, if you do this thing. And so, you know, William's rules would apply here, like use that as little as possible, withdraw as soon as possible, build their motivation towards the maths rather than like you as a teacher, because, you know, at some point you're going to like leave. Um, you're not going to be there we want them to still be motivated towards the thing however like we said earlier sometimes we just got to use some of those extrinsic motivators to help them get to this point where they're motivated in the first place that they, they to build intrinsic motivation so not saying like don't use that just use it judiciously i suppose is the is the is the, the correct bit now on the flip side we've talked earlier on already about this idea of like the power of like groups and approval within groups and that that can help build motivation so there is like a bit of a there's like a little bit of a, like a mess here essentially and um, because what we do know is that we're kind of hardwired to be motivated whenever we uh, feel like we belong to a group and part of belonging to a group is uh, the group approving of us essentially or ha like having approval within the group but i think that's like a slightly different thing to having approval for like learning maths if that makes sense. It's like we can, we should definitely be providing uh, uh, signals of approval for people being part of our, our group in the classroom. Like that should definitely happen. Providing approval for a pupil like doing well in, in mass is a slightly different thing. So there's a bit of a nuance there. We just got to like, uh, like create a bit of distance between. It's come to mind whenever you're talking about using your approval sparingly, is in whenever that's your key driver for managing behavior. I think you run out of currency quite quickly, you know, and, and those are quite stressful situations to be in, in terms of the fact that if you're going back to, you know, your personal connection with the pupil and, you know, sort of imploring them to behave, you know, you, you need those social norms in the classroom really backing you up in the, in the SLT at some point if, if necessary. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, you know, Doug Lamov's view or, or distinction between praise and acknowledgement, I think can be quite helpful here in that, you know, Acknowledgements is can be a positive reinforcer. It's like uh, you know helping to build those routines, um, but it's not necessarily praise. And you know keeping praise for those times when pupils have really exceeded expectations, uh, and using it spontaneously and perhaps a bit randomly as well is probably you know your best bet rather than yeah over overusing or using it consistently or anything like that. I think you're right. The currents that will just it'll lose its value pretty quickly. Are there any key differences in your views to how motivation should be applied when it comes to adults and children? Are there any key differences? Fundamentally, no, I don't think so. Like in terms of the, you know, the, the 
architecture of our minds, architecture of our brains. I think there's more that, it, that there is common than there is different between adults and pupils. However, there, there are some differences. Uh, uh, like some of those differences are as big between young pupils and adolescent pupils. So pupils at the start of their school career and pupils at the end of their school career. Differences there are probably just as big as <laughs> between like pupils at the end of their school career and being adults. Uh, so there's, and some of those are like biological, you know, hormonal. Um, and we've talked like one of the examples we talked about earlier is, you know, as you go through adolescence, there is this kind of like increased drive to build out an independent identity, you know, which is like probably an evolved feature of our, of our, of our makeup to help us like establish a, you know, a community that will you know, succeed for us uh, as, as, as a group into the future. Um, you know, young kids at early primary school don't, don't have that kind of same sense. And so there's an example of how like some of the mechanics might play out slightly differently uh, based on age. Uh, I think for adults, because adults have a greater level of knowledge uh, about certain things, about like you know, perhaps like how to learn, you know, if they've built that kind of metacognitive uh, and some of that self-regulated capacity, the autonomy piece can be a bit different, can look a bit different. Like we can provide, adults can have, uh, can definitely provide adults with more scope for choice and more scope for autonomy. However, on the flip side of that, we know that, you know, accountability is still really important you know i exercise a lot more when i know that when i like exercise with my training partner like i will you know, let him down a lot less than if i just like let myself down going out for a run uh, you know similarly i know when i if i belong to like a running group i will end up like you know turning up to that running group much more often than i would do if i was just going to the gym on my own so like you know these factors still uh, have an influence although you know, there's like having a degree of choice probably has a greater impact as well. So it's like, it's this kind of like highly complex thing. Um, and for me, I think it's just about throwing as much spaghetti at the wall as possible in the hope that lots of it sticks. And uh, alongside that, it's what we, what we want to try and achieve is like a, uh, like a desirable a desirable state for each of the levers. What I mean by that is like, for example, if you have like high levels of belonging and high levels of social norms and, uh, 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 and loads of routines in class, but if the success rate is just like really low all the time, it's not going to work. Like those things aren't going to happen. And similarly, you know, if you can, like pupils are succeeding really loads and loads and loads, but actually if they don't feel like they belong to the class, it's going to be really hard for them to like, you know, sustain the motivation. So like as much spaghetti at the wall as possible, bring up, like as many of those levers to like a decent level as possible. I think that's where you start to get the results. This is one of the reasons why I think that uh, like the evidence around growth mindset is so mixed. I think that like growth mindset is one of the pieces of spaghetti. <laughs> and so like it definitely, you know, it, like it can make a difference. We know that there's evidence to suggest that like uh, people's understanding of like their the causes of their success, you know, make a difference. However, it's only one small slice of the pie. And so if you like, you know, have got like great growth mindset going, but actually your pupils are not feeling success or not feeling belonging, then it's just not going to happen. And so I think it's really hard to like control all of those variables to be able to like determine uh, how effective that slice of the pie is. Um, and so what's probably better is just to try and get like, this is a terrible analogy, try and get all of the pie as well cooked as possible. <laughs> So would it be fair to say then, would you apply those principles to school leadership, so to speak? Because I find that quite a lot of the, the CPD I've delivered over the last couple of years 
I've sort of adopted the same things I'm utilizing in class. So in terms of influencing a school community, you know, of adults, do you reckon it's fair to make that connection? School leadership, yes. I think, again, you know, teachers are adults. And like we said earlier, you know, share like common cognitive architecture with uh, young people uh, and other people in our species. So I'd say like, again, a lot of these heuristics are going to work in a school context as well. Um, the autonomy piece is a really tricky one to, to kind of like square again. Like if we're able to provide a bit of a more autonomy to, to teachers, you're probably going to get a little bit more motivation. But we know that schools work best when there is high degrees of consistency. Um, you know, for example, we talked earlier about social norms. If you have like one set of social norms in classroom A and next door in classroom B, you've got a completely different set of social norms. Then those social norms are going to like actively work against each other and dilute the, their effects. Whereas if you've got the same social norms in classroom A and B, then their norms, those like effects reinforce each other and you get this multiplier effect, which is much more positive. And so that's just one example of like, you know, there are lots of reasons why consistency is really important in school. And so like trying to square that like value of consistency versus like the value of autonomy, I think is a really tricky one for school leaders, but you know, great, great thing to be like playing around with. Yeah, Alan Sims, they open up the teacher gap by saying money isn't the big driver. It's autonomy and for teachers and retention and things, don't they? So, yeah, I can see and it, it's a very fine line to tread. And I think, you know, one that probably most listeners will be thinking about, you know, certainly the school leaders, you know, how can we do that? But I, I reckon there's a lot to take from this conversation. You know, even though we've been talking about pupils, we can still consider, you know, how that might work in adults. Absolutely. Like just, you know, like what is, how do you like help your teachers to feel like they're being successful, you know? A lot of teachers, you know, can walk away from school every day feeling like they failed. Like, and so, how, like framing success, what does it mean to be successful in our school? I think could be a really important thing. Uh, you know, having routines again, like for teachers, routines are just as like useful for teachers as they are for pupils. Like in the classroom, they allow a teacher to spend less of their cognitive load on the on the like the activities happening, so they can spend more of their cognitive load on monitoring and responding to pupils in their class, which is like, you know, the heart of great teaching is like being, being able to be responsive. And as across a school, if you share a bunch of routines, then again, you see this kind of multiplier effect where you know, pupils walk into your classroom, they do certain things without you having to like, you know, invest loads of effort into getting them to do those, which means you can spend more time on like the, the stuff that's really valuable to them. Talking about like norms, you know, having strong norms across the, the staff, uh, you know, in terms of like you know, wanting to strive really hard for pupils and like good, um, positive uh, work-life balance norms, I think it's like really like low-hanging fruit for schools. And then that sense of belonging as well. You know, we know, I'm sure lots of your listeners have worked in some schools where they felt like they really belonged to a certain like a group, uh, the whole school or like, you know, a, a subset within that school and how like powerful that can be in terms of their like satisfaction and well-being and just like appetite for getting up and doing a great job every day i think you know you can you know you take a step back here and then you look at what you're doing here you know you're building a community uh, and that can help as well in terms of like the motivation of the profession on a, on a, on a more macro scale you know bringing people together in your discord and to listen to the podcast and to talk about these issues you know this makes us feel part of something bigger than just your school context or organization context and that's, you know, that's a great feeling and one that, like, certainly for me, gets me up in the morning and keeps me awake at night thinking about all this stuff. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I think Neil Almond, he, he talked to me about how teaching was his hobby. And a few people have mentioned how that 
they feel released from the guilt that teaching was also their hobby because you know it doesn't feel like work whenever I'm thinking about doing this kind of stuff you know it, it, it's really enjoyable and um, I like both the education and the the tech side as well you know and um, but there's there's definitely a lot of us out there and if we can share that load you know and, and work together I think then it's, it's definitely for the betterment of the of our pupils yeah so you could quite possibly be the person who's been most referenced on this podcast we've done <laughs> We done. We did fifty-two episodes in in two thousand twenty-one, and you know I haven't counted, but your name caught quite a lot, you know, because um, you know your contribution has been has been quite, you know, substantial over the last couple of years, you know, and I think your books are a shining example of how edgy books can be done really, really well. Your new book focuses on developing expert teaching. I asked this question to everybody, and I asked this question to Christopher Such, who's had a really popular book. Um, released this year about reading and um, so it's not me being cheeky but why does the world need this book <laughs> why is it more like why do i need to write this book that's probably like, yeah more important you know often you write books just to like get them out just get them off your some it's like in there i just got to get it out and you know so why does the word like that's the reason why the book's been written to get it out of my mind to get it out of my brain um, but I wouldn't be writing it unless I felt there was some value in there because there's a lot of stuff in my brain I need to get out <laughs> in case of like, you know, what, what next? So the reason I'm writing this book is because I think we're, you know, earlier on we talked about, I mentioned that I think we're in this kind of golden age for certain aspects of our teaching, certain aspects of our teaching of the profession we're not in a golden age for. But I think one of the like parts of the profession we're in a golden age for is around professional development particularly in the UK I think we're having some of like the best conversations around PD in the world uh, and some of like the you know re reforms that have are coming out around the country you know definitely not perfect but I think are really interesting uh, like exp ex experiments and are grounded in in like pr pretty pretty solid evidence so like makes me optimistic really about the future of, of teaching in the, in the UK or England at least but one of the things that uh uh, I, I feel we haven't quite nailed down yet is is kind of uh, like how we can increase the chances that the PD that we do is really impactful. Um, I think there is like emerging evidence around this, but still pretty scant. Um, and cr crucially, I think we, a bit like with motivation, we kind of lack like an overarching framework at the minute for thinking about PD, uh, like what it is, how it relates to expertise, teacher effectiveness, teacher quality, like how learning fits into it, like, um, you know, what, what the, like what the role of reflection is, what the role of coaching is, what, uh, you know, what does deliberate practice fit into it, how important are habits as part of the equation, what about teacher motivation, like, and how do these, how do all of these things interrelate, like what's this, like the ideal dosage for PD, you know, I think there are just loads of questions that we don't necessarily have even the language to start to talk about yet, never mind the answers for, and so what I want to try and do with this book, a bit like with motivation book, is to try and provide a bit of a, like a framework that we can start to kick around and start to use as a bit of common language to start to talk about this stuff a little bit more and of course drag in as much of the evidence base as possible to support that initial framework so we have like a decent robust starting point the like exciting thing for this book is that the you know, forthcoming book is that not only will I be able to draw on like the evidence base that I've been kind of like engaged with over the last maybe 15 years or so, but 
also be able to like lean on some of my experiences at designing, delivering PD at scale over the last you know ten years, I suppose. You know, as uh, like a PTC lecturer university for you know six seven years, and then the last five or so years has been working for ambition, like designing programs for lots of different like you know, audiences, really for teachers, you know, middle leaders, senior leaders. Um, masters in expert teaching all these kinds of things and so I'm hoping that I can like take as many of the lessons from literature as possible uh, that line up with the lessons that I've learned from my experience at designing PD at scale and like create you know the kind of peps thing it's just like a really concise bunch of insights into some of those lessons so that other people can you know take them and improve on them and kick them around and tell me where I'm wrong and that kind of stuff. What's the crossover like with your PhD? Because it's a, your thesis is sort of pushing in the same direction as the Venn diagram. Do they overlap quite a bit? Not as much as I would like it to be. <laughs> <laughs> like writing a PhD is like is a different. It's a different beast. It's a different audience. You know, it's probably going to be a couple of people who ever read that. Bless them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it uh, it kind of has to. It has, PhD has to be almost mind-numbingly boring. Uh, and like almost the opposite of concise in order to be able to, you know, be really secure that you're actually moving the, the kind of knowledge base forward. Um, whereas the books have to like take a, you know, a, a, a much different approach to building like really actionable insights in as short a space of time as possible. However, the focus is uh, pretty much like, or a very similar thing. You know, I want to make sure that whatever I'm thinking about, it's all contributing to this, this same goal of, you know, helping teachers to get better. And so my PhD is currently focused on um, essentially what like, yeah, what a model of teaching might be that allows us to like do teacher education well, basically. Um, so yeah, getting into the weeds around all sorts of stuff around that, which is, you know, uh, both good for, you know, my professional role in the system to make sure I'm doing things rigorously, but also good for me personally to make me keep learning Karen, because it's you know it's just as important that I keep developing um, as as a teacher as well. Absolutely, and I think in terms of moving the profession forward, if you know, I don't think anyone's successfully managed to come up with a unifying theory of of education or, or of teaching. So you know, if, if that were a thing, you know, or certainly if we got if you got anywhere you're close to it, it would be massively invaluable to the to the profession. So yeah, I'll definitely be one of the people reading because they're they're all kept in the British Library, aren't they? Yeah, I do. I think like. You know, we're a long way off any kind of unified theory, but I think there's been uh, a, a lack of efforts to try and build such anything like that over the last, you know, probably 50 years or so. And so I'm keen just to kind of take up that torch again and push it forward, even if it's just a tiny step in the right direction, I'd be <laughs> really, really happy. Um, yeah. The, the, the subject of your talk at, at the Research Aid National Conference was developing expert teaching. So if that talk is anything to go by, then the, you know this book will be another phenomenal addition to the uh, the canon, the Pestmore canon. So I know that everyone listening will be really looking forward to, to checking that out as soon as possible. Great, great. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, like like ever, uh, don't get your hopes up too much. These things <laughs> these things take time, um, but you can pre-order on Amazon. Uh, so like get in there, and that will book you in, uh, and it definitely will be shipped. It's just a matter of when. These things like. I don't like to rush these things because you know it's better to produce something really good even if it takes another six months or a year um you know quality trumps speed i think for me absolutely and i'm sure people understand you've got quite a lot on your plate you know as part of your day job never mind the, the things you do in your <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
So, I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating today, Pess. Have you any final advice for listeners who are feeling supercharged and ready to up their motivation game? Well, I, I would say, genuinely, I'd say get involved in what you're doing, Kieran. Like, come and join the Discord channel. Uh, you know, like talk to other people about this podcast and other stuff you're you're learning about. Like, the more you kind of go out and get involved in this stuff, the more you end up feeling like you belong. Uh, you know, even today, me chatting to you makes me feel a little bit more like I belong to this movement, which is a really positive thing. Uh, and so, it'd be that. And then just yeah, think about those levers, and you know, nothing changes if you don't do anything differently. So. You know, take some of these ideas back to your classroom and have a play, do a bit of experimentation, see what you think might work for you. And when you figure stuff out, talk about it to other people, like share, share the love, share the stuff. Uh, you know, that's kind of how, how we have to move forward as a community is like trying stuff out and, and talking about it regularly. Every person I interview, I feel a bit more part of the, the, the online community too, because, you know, avatars are avatars at the end of the day, aren't they? But the more people you talk to in person, the, the, the easier it becomes, I think. Um, yeah. you know, so, but thank you very much for today I really appreciate it well, I know people will find it really useful and, and worthwhile so thank you yeah oh, well it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, yeah look forward to catching up with you guys even more in person like, like real life 3D in person at some point <laughs>